Hello, everybody. The campaign is going great. So far, over 70 people have listened to my rants. Now, that may not seem like much to you, but for me, it is 70 more people than were listening just two weeks ago. And if each one of those 70 people just tells one million of their friends about this podcast, we'll have this election in the bag. Not everything is perfect, though. I got more feedback from Josh. This time, he was complaining that my stories are just too dark. Josh, there's a reason my stories are dark. My alter ego writes the stories, and he's not funny. You might think I'm not funny either, but this ego is big enough that it doesn't care what you think. By the way, thank you to listeners Yadida and Mickey for helping make that ego as big as it is. I was going to do a fun little sketch in this piece before I got to the dark and gloomy story bit. I was going to pretend I was preparing for an interview with some major and respected highfalutin news organization. They'd ask me questions, and I'd answer them honestly. It's a surefire way to lose an election, but it's a lot more fun than the alternative. Anyway, that was my plan, and then a podcast with a seriously major aspirations texted me and said we want to interview a presidential candidate. They also said they'd tried all the other campaigns and had heard nothing back. Well, I have no pride. Seriously major aspirations are just fine with me, so I immediately said yes, and they've let me share that interview with you, but not yet. Unlike me, these podcasters are professionals, and so they'll edit the interview, and process the interview, and massage the interview, and either make me look really good or really bad, depending on how they feel that day. That said, listen for the interview on the not-quite-not-yet world-famous not-quite-30-minute game show. You may not have heard of it, but trust me, after listening to this interview, you probably will wish you still hadn't. The interview is scheduled to come out on the 21st of December. Oh, and I have to warn you, the hosts are English, which means they think they're clever. On to the current events of the day. First off, Taiwan has been fighting Chinese efforts to have it classified on websites as a province of Greater China. And, in related news, Apple was criticized for labeling Crimea as a part of Russia on its map and weather apps. I'm familiar with these sorts of labeling disputes. I've heard they even exist somewhere near where I live. So I'm proposing a simple solution. You and I will get together and we'll start a business. We'll call it iCountry. Users will be able to select any region of the world and label it however they want to. Companies can also register for it, choosing how they want those regions to appear on their own servers. When the users get to an online form that has countries, their own custom selections will appear, while the companies will have their entries translated to their preferred responses. We'll give users free accounts, of course, but we'll charge companies through the nose. The PR benefit of not having these sort of snafus is just too big to ignore. We can take it one step further and offer to sell doctored statistics on people's preferences to the highest bidder. If China wants us to report that users prefer to see Taiwan as a simple province, just pay up and we'll be happy to oblige. Countries really seem to value this sort of nonsense propaganda. One thing we won't do, I do have principles, is tell countries who selected what. From my part, I'm looking forward to selecting Candidate City as my mailing address. All in all, with this simple innovation, nations and wannabe nations can finally stop fighting about this somewhat idiotic issue, and my investors can make a mint along the way. Are you in? 
There is one other major news item I feel I should cover, and that is impeachment. Now, I am for the impeachment process. First off, it is seriously cheap entertainment. Think about the cost of a single blockbuster movie. You won't even remember that movie in a few years. But this, the cost is minimal. You just have to fly a few witnesses around. But it provides a much-needed boost to America's suffering media businesses. Could CNN, Fox News, or others even survive without this sort of thing? It even helps Facebook. So, this is wonderful economically. Second, it is wonderful politically. I mean, our House and our Senate and our President could actually be trying to help the country by passing more and more laws and regulations and enforcing them. Instead, they're being kept busy with a sideshow, and only the really important stuff is getting through. So that's good. And of course, impeachment is good for me personally. Why? Well, I'm not involved. Impeachment is a massive knockdown, drag out battle between two Goliaths in which nobody will emerge looking good. Which means people like me munching on popcorn as we watch the fight can emerge as the real victors. Of course, it isn't all fun and good times. Because the impeachment process is a symptom of the mythical American unity fracturing. Of course, we've been fighting and calling each other horrible names since before the birth of the Republic. Nonetheless, I think we could all do a little more to get along. Now, I'm not one of those namby-pamby, no-labels types. I've got no problem with calling people bubble-headed communists, rapacious capitalists, bleeding-heart liberals, patriotic morons, or racist bastards. Names are great fun, and they make things far simpler to understand. But we could, perhaps, try to find the good in each of these groups. The bubble-headed communists want to make sure people aren't exploited, and that's important. The rapacious capitalists want to leverage the power of human desire to open up new realities. The bleeding-heart liberals want to make sure those thwacked by reality can get back up. The patriot morons are proud of what good we've done, and, I'd hope, hopeful about what good we could do in the future. And the racist bastards? Well, let's skip the racist bastards. My point is that while we may fundamentally disagree with others, and I fundamentally disagree with everybody, there is something to embrace, some goodness in all their ideas. Which brings me to this week's story. Now I have to warn you, the budget for this podcast is low. Of course, you knew that already. And this story is read from the perspective of a woman. But as you may have guessed, I'm not a woman. open the door to my new office and step in. A cardboard box is in my hand. It has everything I need. I look at the room with its two walls of tinted glass, its clean carpet, and its massive desk. It smells of industrial carpet cleaner generously applied. It seems to perfectly match the scent of my dry clean suit. I close the door behind me so nobody can see me, and then I smile the broadest smile of my life. I am finally where I belong. I step forward and gingerly place the cardboard box on the clear table. I remove the lid and stare down at the contents. Leaning against one side is my laptop and power cord. I remove it and place it on the desk in front of my office chair. I line it up perfectly with the desk and run the wire through to the power port. I take a moment to examine my handiwork 
and then I return to the box. I look again, then I pull out a single sheet of laminated paper. I place it face up, exactly two inches from the corner of the desk. It will be in the near right corner for those who enter my office. It too is lined up with the desk. Then on the paper, I place an empty pill bottle, a candy bar with a sales sticker on it, and a napkin with a diagram jotted down. All are lined up with one another perpendicular to my laptop so I can see them easily when I work. Finally, at the bottom of the box is a collection of over 1,000 letters. They come in all shapes and sizes and colors. I pick them out one by one and slowly and methodically tape them to my new office walls. I line them up in a pattern I laid out on my computer before coming here. It has taken me all day, but I am finally done. I lift the box from the table and place it near the door. Then I turn around and look again at the space. My laptop is in position, but more importantly, so are the other objects. The paper, candy bar, pill bottle, napkin, and letters. I smile again. This is where I belong. Finally, I am being recognized. It has been a long road getting here. When I was in grade school, I wanted to fit in, but I never managed to do so. When troops of girls would start obsessing over fashion or a band or even one another, I would try to get involved. I would read up on the subject and maybe watch a video or two. I would prepare a few comments so I could seem to be interested. Then when I got a chance, I'd join in a conversation. I'd say my piece, but moments later, invariably, everybody would either laugh at me or drift away. I'd go home and cry, and then I'd try again. I'd adjust my approach, of course. I'd analyze the probabilities of different elements combining to realize the desired outcome. Popularity, or at least, acceptability. Time after time, I'd keep trying, and time after time, I'd keep failing. It seemed I didn't know how to communicate with my peers. It took me a while to realize that the real problem was that they didn't know how to communicate with me. I didn't realize that they were really interested in the band or the fashion or how they did their hair. I thought they were just pretending. I thought it was all some sort of social dance necessary to achieve popularity. I thought it was a means to an end. I didn't realize that dance itself was the point. I thought I truly believed that they were like me. I thought they saw the world as numbers and patterns and geometric relationships. I thought they watched others walk and pulled out patterns in their movements. I thought they also saw equations in their movements through the playground, in the ways they clumped and shifted. I thought they thought like I did. But they didn't. It turns out I'd even dreamed differently than they did. Where they dreamed in images, I dreamed in formulas and integers and geometric relationships. I had nothing in common with them. I was different from them. And so, over time, I pulled away from them. What I was interested in, they could not understand. And it seemed like the inverse was also true. As I grew older, the differences only grew starker. As a child, I consumed numbers. I read mathematics textbooks. I saw patterns around me. But, bit by bit, I began to create numbers, 
just as an artist would bring an image to life on a canvas or a writer in words, I began to create in numbers. Patterns would speak to me telling stories, capturing beauty only I seemed able to see, revealing truths others wanted to hide. I went through college this way. I got a degree in mathematics, but the coursework was simple. Far more of my time was spent conjuring numerical realities that nobody but I seemed capable of appreciating. I loved what I was doing. I loved the beauty of it. I loved the complexity. I loved the honesty. But I didn't need to go to college for any of it. I knew the math and I loved the numbers. But I didn't belong. I wasn't doing what I was meant for and I knew it. The one thing college gave me that my art could not was a job. My senior year, a professor of mine found me a position. I was to be an analyst at a state government employee pension fund. I expected I'd find my tribe there. I hoped to find my purpose. But I didn't. I didn't know it at the time. But when I was hired, I was hired as a diversity employee. I was considered disabled, autistic to be precise. I didn't think I was disabled, but I did end up filling some sort of state quota. It was why I got the job. The fund was happy to hire me. People felt good having me around. But nobody really expected me to contribute much of anything. I was supposed to run routine reports and present them to management. I wasn't meant to be tasked with anything too difficult. Of course, the jobs of my co-workers weren't that much more advanced, although they may have disagreed. It was all basic stuff done by basic people. Sure, the people were more geeky than average, but even they didn't see the world the way I did, and I was far from fulfilled. The job turned from okay to worse when my manager started explaining pension accounting to me. It didn't take me long to get what they were explaining, but I could not accept it. It seemed like the accounting was just corrections piled on top of corrections. Excessively optimistic projections were combined with theoretical future makeup of shortfalls, which were themselves additionally enhanced. The rise in healthcare costs was forecasted to become something magically brought under control, and all of it was combined to make a system that was terribly broken seem less so. Even with all the lies, it didn't work. What we published were projections of shortfalls that were themselves incredibly optimistic. I was hired to help them lie. But I couldn't accept making the numbers lie. To me, numbers were beauty, and their beauty was being rotted away. I tried to bury my head. I tried to pretend it wasn't happening, but I couldn't. I could see the lies, the corruption of the truth of numbers spreading. I could see pensioners and then society being slowly overwhelmed by the truth the numbers told, and I could see everything falling apart. Hunger in the streets, elderly homelessness, lack of medicines, all numbers as promises that turned out to be lies, and there was nothing I could do. After I understood the problem, I spent every waking hour thinking about it. I wanted to solve it. But I kept coming back to two realities. Either the truth of the numbers was accepted, in which case people's lives unraveled now as the promises made to them shrank massively under their very eyes. Or the lies were continued, promises were paid out, and those paid last were left with nothing at all. 
There seemed to be no other options. Even the greatest manager could not stop it. All they could do was hope to slow it down. It all seemed so hopeless. And then I was diagnosed with cancer. When I took a leave of absence, my co-workers pitied me, like I had suffered so much only to suffer this as well. I can't say at this point that I disagreed. But what bothered me most of all wasn't my own suffering or death. It was the gaping lie I was threatening to leave behind. It was the great unsolved equation that I could not understand or conquer. The doctors tried chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. I watched as the odds of my survival shifted and wandered. They jerked and spasmed at first, but then slowly they settled down. As I got sicker and sicker, my diagnosis got clearer. The numbers were not good. I was hopeless, and it seemed like the best thing I could do was slow things down a bit. As the cancer continued to rage through me, I began to see it like I saw the accounting. Chemotherapy might slow the cancer down, just like cutting benefits would, but the body would suffer terribly. The alternative would just encourage the runaway costs, and when the end came, it would be far more sudden. Neither one was a winner. And then I was entered into a trial for an immunotherapy. For me, the results were amazing. Within weeks, I was in complete remission. A few days after that, I was back at work. I was effectively cured. My own cells had been given the tools needed to rescue me. I didn't stop thinking of the fund's problems as a cancer. Perhaps I imagined some sort of immunotherapy would help. Instead of trying to force solutions on from on high and trying to chase down individually replicating costs with roughly applied controls that damaged innovation and limited care, maybe something else could be done. Maybe individuals could somehow be used to drive down their own costs. Maybe somehow they could be empowered to create better outcomes, like white blood cells chasing down a cancer. But I didn't know how to do it. I threw myself into the problem, but I had no practical ideas. It was while I was having coffee at a cafe alone that I got my answer. A mother came and sat down near me. She had her son with her. The boy gestured toward the convenience store next door and asked, Can I have a treat? The mother said, Here are two dollars. Buy whatever you want and keep the change. The boy ran off like a shot. I was curious about what would happen, so I stayed even after I finished my coffee. A few minutes later, the kid ran back, almost out of breath. In one hand, he held a candy bar. It was marked with a prominent half-price sticker. In the other, he held a receipt. He was proud, and he'd be taking home 75 cents in change. The boy hadn't had to pay for his treat, but he'd been frugal and he'd done his tiny part in driving down the cost of candy. A moment later, I realized that was the cure I was looking for. Instead of bombarding our members with cost controls, we could empower them. If they were brought in with a suspected lump, we would figure out the median cost of getting to a diagnosis. And then, just like the mother did, we'd pay them a bit more than that. They'd shop around for an examination. If they paid more than the median cost of that exam, they'd cover the difference. But if they paid less, they'd keep the change. Then they'd get to the next step. Perhaps it would be another diagnosis with another tranche of money following to treat whatever they had. 
advanced models and huge amounts of patient data would take the factors of the situation into account to determine what the median cost was and how much needed to be paid. Open, anonymous records would enable diagnosis to be checked by freelance auditors. Finally, we'd keep receipts of whatever they spent on their care so we could update the median cost every few years, giving those providers who innovated and cut costs a chance to profit. But they, the patients, would keep the change. The fund was so large and had so many patients that each of them, with each choice, would drive down the cost of care. The median cost of treatments would drop year after year as providers competed for business. Our patients would be frugal and providers would cut costs in order to get their business. Just as important, we would meet our promises to them. They'd get enough money to treat their diagnosis and we wouldn't leave them uncared for. There would be no lies in our numbers. I grabbed a napkin from the holder and I began to chart the effects. I couldn't do it perfectly, of course. You can't predict innovation. There are standard models, though. I could see costs plummeting while services improved, just like in high-tech or in laser eye surgery. New incentives would ripple through the system and rebuild it from the ground up. The fund might just survive. I ran to the store and bought another of the candy bars, and then I ran back to work. I skipped my desk. I skipped my manager. I just burst into the office of the man who ran the entire thing. He looked up at me, and then I held up the candy bar, and I explained my idea. He was a numbers guy. He got it, and he made it happen. Signatures had to be gathered. A vote had to be held. People needed to be convinced, but he made it happen. And soon it was the way the fund managed its health care expenses, and it worked even better than I thought it would. Indian providers, Indian, got into the market for our patients. They offered high-quality surgeries at low prices, and our patients responded. Local providers got more competitive. Clinics opened in the Bahamas. High-tech got into the act. New therapies were designed, therapies designed to save money. Innovation in delivery, in administration, in technology exploded. Costs suddenly under pressure from a sort of social immunotherapy plummeted. In the end, the fund was rescued and the lies were unwound. Truth came back to the numbers. A newspaper interviewed me about what I'd done. I told them the story. And then the letters started coming in. There were letters of gratitude and of thanks. There were letters about worries lifted and fears erased. I read each of them, but I didn't stop there. I calculated their counts and colors and contents, and I put them up in ordered rows, bringing some bit of organization to their beautiful variety. I covered my cubicle in neatly arranged layers of letters. And then finally, I was promoted. I was made a fund manager. I wasn't the top dog. I would never be a politician, but I was something close. I was being recognized. I was being appreciated. And in an odd little circle, I was finally being welcomed. As I walked into my new office, my little cardboard box was with me. I unpacked it carefully, treating each item reverentially. The pill box used to contain a part of my immunotherapy. It told me the concept I must aspire to. The candy bar was the one I had bought on sale from the store. It told me how I could make the concept real. The napkin was the one I had written on in the cafe. It was the revelation of what was possible. Together, 
They are the reasons I am where I am. I place all the items on the laminated paper. The paper is a printout of rule changes the fund managers voted for. They are what made the revelation real. And the letters, the letters taped to the walls, are the thanks I have received. They are the beauty of what I have discovered. I look it all over then, and I smile yet again. I have a new job. Here, sitting at this desk, I will take the ideas of others, and I will figure out how to make them real. I will empower the members of our fund. I will be the beating heart of our organization. I smile once more, truly happy. My office is a tabernacle of financial immunotherapy. Finally, I turn and pull open the door. It is time to get to work. I have a purpose, finally, to fulfill. I've chosen healthcare as this week's issue because it is a source of real pain. But it is also a powerful example of conflicting approaches to the world. Today, there are so many things we can treat that could not be treated a generation ago. The reason is simple. Companies have invested billions in the hope of making money on more effective treatments. This is why the vast majority of medical innovations since World War II have been launched first in the U.S. market. The U.S. itself has paid for the world's healthcare innovation, but the cost has been enormous, and it is still growing. So we have a challenge. We can grant universal healthcare and quite possibly kill innovation that could save more people in the future, or we can keep our screwed-up system and effectively deny treatments to those who need them now. The story is about getting the best of both worlds. Now, I can go into a lot of detail about this model. For example, patients would only be able to keep 5% of the savings, so they, or more importantly, their relatives, don't choose money over life. Also, for treatments that provide a revolutionary advantage, initial so-called median costs would be developed using quality-adjusted life-year models. These already exist. I'd also imagine that there would be healthcare agencies who would represent patients. They would offer their services to get patients the best trade-offs on cost, service, and speed. Thus, when you are in an emergency, you'd call your agent, and they would choose the ambulance, hospital, and so on, based on priorities you already communicated to them. There are, of course, a lot of other details. But the main point remains, rather than trying to point out what is wrong with other people's solutions, we could bring their priorities together to create new and more powerful solutions. We can identify and use the good ideas that different groups bring to the table. Of course, this is why nobody agrees with me. But it is also why, in reality, they all might be able to. And that is why I'm running for president. One last campaign update. We are still holding steady at $14 out of a total limit of 5000 At this rate, I can campaign for 14 years or even longer if I switch to the annual podcasting plan. That's going great. But, well, we added 35 listeners to the prior 35 listeners. If you are one of those listeners, hold your head high. You are in on the ground floor of something really exciting. Of course, you have to make it exciting. So rather than adding listeners, let's multiply them. 
Rotate that plus sign 45 degrees and we'll be in great shape. You know what you have to do. Thank you and have a great week. Thank you.